I've told you many, many, many times that I spent two years working on a ship. And this ship, uh, the galley crew, the galley is what they call a kitchen on a ship. The galley crew, the kitchen employees, the people who worked in the kitchen, they worked really, really hard because they had to provide three meals a day for 320 people and two what they called tea breaks a day for 320 people. So they worked very, very hard and they made all these meals. But they knew how to make the meals. They didn't know how to make them good. And uh, this, this, quite frankly, the food on the ship was not good. And more recently, you, many of you know that one of the same family of ships, the Logos Hope, was docked in Santos for a while. Some of you had the chance to go visit the ship. And uh, a friend of mine who had served on the ship back in the early 80s, and we had talked before about how interesting the food was, he went and visited the Logos Hope and stayed on board for a couple days, just this, what, two years ago. When he came back, I said, so, I imagine the food's better. And he, his eyes got really big and he said, worse. He said, it's worse. If you can imagine, it's gotten worse. One day, uh, I met, uh, we were in Australia, and I met a family who had come on board to visit the ship. And we struck up a conversation, and it was as though God just gave us a connection. So I invited them to come back and have lunch with me on the ship the following day. We were allowed to invite people from shore to join us on board, a limited number of people. So this, this family came, and they joined me the next day. And that single meal was the worst meal that I had during the two years I was on board the ship. No lie. And what was served was liver. Now, maybe you really enjoy liver. I do not enjoy liver. Um, not at all. Not even as an adult, one of the few things that really, very, very difficult for me. It was the only day we had liver on the ship. That day was the only day. And uh, I was so apologetic to this family. You know, I had invited them on board and it was embarrassing. The next day, I got a call from the, the, the father, the, the, the husband of that family. And uh, he called me and he said, listen, uh, I, I didn't tell you this, but I have a small ranch. And how would I go about giving some cattle to the ship? How would I go about giving? He said, I have seven head of cattle that I want to give to the, the ship. And I was amazed. I thought, we're going to have real beef. We're going to have real food, fresh not the one that's been packaged and shipped in Europe and then comes out on a ship to us in a container and then eventually is reconstituted into something edible. So the long and the short, this, this man did this. They, they gave seven cattle to the ship. The, the, the beef was butchered and was prepared. And then I remember the first day that some of this fresh beef was prepared and, and the, the galley made steaks for us. We're so excited and we walked in and there was a sign by the stakes because it was always a buffet table. There was a sign. And the sign said, one each. <laughs> this was a theme. Anytime on the ship that there was anything that was remotely attractive or that might be not so bad as everything else, there was always a sign on it. 
one each. I think we had ice cream two times when I was there. There was a sign, one scoop each only. You know what? I hated that limitation. I hated it. And I think by nature, all humans, we all dislike limitations that are imposed upon us. We want the license to do what we want, how we want, when we want. We don't like limitations that are imposed on us by law. We don't mind the, 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 the limitations imposed on others by law. But um, let me ask you, what about traffic laws? Do you enjoy those limitations that are put on you? Speed limitations, cell phone limitations, other parking limitations. We don't like limitations sometimes that are imposed on us by tradition, by family, by society. And I would suggest we don't like, we often do not like the limitations that are imposed on us by God. And yet, we like to impose our limitations on others, and especially on God. A limited God will not call me to do what I don't want to do or go where I don't want to go. A limited God will not control me, but I can control him. Last week, we were introduced more personally to Stephen, one of those seven men who had been chosen because they were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom to make sure that the distribution of food was being carried out fairly to all of the Christian widows. Last week, we read about Stephen's arrest and the false accusations made against him. Today, we're going to read his speech of defense. And, and this speech, which is the longest sermon recorded in Acts, Stephen argues for the unlimited reality of God and specifically against four limitations that the Jewish leaders were trying to impose upon God himself. I'm going to read all of Stephen's speech. It's not only the longest speech in Acts, it's also the longest chapter in Acts. And I want you to follow along. I, and like I said, I know it's very long, but ultimately this is God's word, and his word is more important than what I have to say about his word. So I want us to hear all of it. And as I read it, I want you to see if you can find or note these themes that Stephen keeps touching on. How the religious leaders in Jerusalem tried to impose limits upon God, specifically upon God's activity, God's presence, God's authority, and God's salvation. Okay? So I'll be reading Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this, he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him 
that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit... Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptians. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt 
at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the books of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. As I mentioned before I read this, there are four limitations against which Stephen is arguing. Limitations that involve the activity of God, the presence of God, the authority of God, and the salvation of God. And Stephen's first argument is this. The activity of God is not limited to the land of Israel. 
It's difficult for us to understand how precious the concept of the promised land was to the Israelite nation. It was woven into the fabric of their worship and their history and their national identity. They had been a wandering nation and then an enslaved nation and then a wandering nation again for 40 years in the wilderness before finally arriving in a land that God had promised to them and which became their own. I don't think any of us can fully identify with the love and the reverence that the Israelite nation had for their land, the land God had given them. I think the closest that I can come to it is for, for me and my family when we returned to our home after a long trip in the United States. So this last June and July, we were in the U.S. for about two months, and we loved it. We had a great time, but we were always staying in the homes of others. And it was never our own space. We could never let our own mess take over the whole house. Uh, you know, there were limitations on what our sons could do in these different homes and different places. And the first night when we're back in our own home and our own space with our own mess and our own problems, but there are problems, you know, they're not other people's problems. And we can enjoy that space, that home. It's a, it's a return to rest and belonging. But over time, the Jewish people had come to impose the land as a limit on God, believing that God's redemptive activity was limited to the geographical boundaries of the promised land. And so we see how Stephen persuasively argues against this limitation from Israel's own history. It's almost like a list that he gives of all the different places that God was active in the land of the Chaldeans, in Haran, in Egypt, twice, once with Abraham and then later with Joseph, in Midian, in the desert, at Mount Sinai. And all of these places are outside of the geographical boundaries of the promised land. God is not limited by human means in any sense, in any of his actions and most definitely not confined to any geographic region. Stephen's second argument is that the presence of God is not limited to the temple. Just as we may have a hard time understanding how precious the land was to the ancient Jewish nation, it may be just as challenging for us to understand their reverence for the temple because we don't have anything that compares. Stephen gives a brief history of the temple beginning with the tabernacle, which is the forerunner of the temple. And we, we, we learn some interesting things from Stephen. We have to, to read between the lines a little bit. But the way Stephen portrays this to us is that the tabernacle was ordained by God. It came from God. God gave Moses the vision and the plans for it. It was God's idea, and, God, and Moses and the people implemented God's idea. And the tabernacle was a tent that traveled with the people. Wherever the people went, the, the tabernacle was taken with them. Then Stephen describes the advent of the temple. And according to Stephen, the idea of the temple came about from a man. So God ordained the tabernacle, but a man, David, had the vision for the temple. And 
God did not permit David to build the temple. If you recall, he limited David because David was a man of war and a man with blood on his hands. So David's son, Solomon, eventually built the temple. But David, what was his motivation? Do you remember what what sparked in David this desire to build a temple for the Lord? David had finished building this incredible palace of cedar wood for himself. And then he looked at the tabernacle, which was a tent, a mobile tent. And he said, it's not right that I would dwell in this kind of palace and that God would live in a tabernacle. We see also some of Stephen's frustration, not with the temple itself as a building, but with the way that the temple had become an idol in and of itself. He doesn't give much time to the temple. In fact, it's very brief, and all he says about it is that, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. One phrase. And even his use of the word house is telling. Calling the temple a house is like calling the palace of Versailles a house. No one calls Versailles a house. It's a palace. It's a mansion. It's, it's, it's huge. It's, and the temple was a beautiful, awe-inspiring structure covered with gold, full of valuable stones and valuable artifacts and designed to be beautiful. And yet, and yet Stephen describes it as a house. And then he says, remember, everybody, God does not dwell in a house made by the hands of men. No building can contain God. He doesn't need people to build him a house. All the universe is his domain. And the tabernacle, as Stephen describes it, the tabernacle was a a tent that God ordained in which the glory of God dwelt, but it traveled with the people. And to Stephen, that's an important difference between the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle traveled with God's people, an image of the presence of God going with his people, whereas the temple is a fixed location. And what had come to be the practice was they were containing God within that temple. Here's the presence of God. Anyone who wants to worship God, anyone who wants to counter God, has to do it here. And again, Stephen gives examples from history. Moses at the burning bush. That was a direct encounter with the presence of God for Moses. That wasn't in the temple. It wasn't even in the land of Israel. No building can contain God. He doesn't need people to build a house for him. The temple had become an idol and a stumbling block to the nation because they tried to use it as a limitation on the presence of God. But God will not be contained by any building or any physical space. Maybe some of you might then ask, well, what what is our theology of church buildings? I think that's a valid question. You know, from time to time, we have people who stop by here during the week, members of our congregation who just ring the doorbell and say, can I just come in and can I just pray there in the sanctuary for a while? Sure. Any of you are welcome to do that. So how do we view this building differently, perhaps, than, than those ancient Jews would have viewed the temple? We don't believe that God is limited to only this space. We don't believe that this is the only place that God's people can encounter him. It's not the only place that we can worship him. At the same time, 
we do value this as a sacred space. And let me explain what I mean by sacred. I'm using it in its true definition, which means set apart for a purpose. We've consecrated this room. We've consecrated this building. We have committed it primarily to the purpose of meeting, of God's people meeting with each other and worshiping him. And so we want to make it a conducive space to that end. So one that's not too hot. (laughs) Hopefully the air conditioning is working okay today. We work on the acoustics. We try to make it beautiful. We try to upkeep it so that it is conducive to its purpose, worshiping the Lord and gathering together as brothers and sisters. Um, it, it's, it, it's similar to, to playing basketball. You knew I had to work that in somewhere. We could ask, why do you only play basketball? It's so legalistic of you. You only want to play basketball on a basketball court. You only want to play basketball where there's a, a rim and a hoop and a backboard. Why, why would you limit yourself? That's so legalistic. Why don't you play in the mall? Why don't you play on the street? Why don't you play in the grocery store? Well, I suppose it's possible to try to play basketball in the mall or on the street or in the grocery store, but it's not going to be a very satisfying experience for those who really enjoy the sport. Can we encounter God in places other than this room? Absolutely. Can we worship God in places other than this room? Absolutely, of course, yes. He is not limited. But we do at the same time value this space because we have consecrated it for the purpose of worshiping him. And it's been prepared to be conducive to that worship. But God's presence is not and cannot be limited to any specific physical space or building. Stephen's third argument is that God's authority is not limited by the religious leaders. While we may view pastors and religious leaders today with maybe a certain respect, we don't come close to revering them the way the ancient Jewish people revered their religious leaders. And I'm not arguing that we should, just be be clear, things are good the way they are. But the Sanhedrin was the governing body of all Jewish religious and social affairs. It was an elite body made up of scholars and priests and scribes, men who had devoted their lives to studying the Jewish scriptures, the prophets and the the Torah, Moses. But they're the ones who are most actively opposing the gospel. And Stephen is pretty harsh in his treatment of these men. But again, he goes back into history to show that all through Israel's past, The religious leaders had consistently rejected God's messengers and refused to listen to them. Joseph, God had raised up to be the savior of his people through rising in Egypt and then providing a safe place for his father and his brothers and their families during the famine. And how how was Joseph treated by his brothers? He was sold into slavery. And then Stephen talks about Moses, how Moses was rejected also. He was the one that God had ordained would lead his people and they react to him and say, who are you that you should tell us what to do? And then even after he's confirmed as their leader, all through those 40 years, there are multiple times where the people complain against him, where the people rebel against him, where they grumble. And there's even times where Moses is ready to say, forget it, God, I'm done. 
There's even times where God is ready to say, forget it, I'm done with these people. And Stephen goes on and says to him, was there ever, he's saying this to the Sanhedrin, was there ever a prophet that you, that your forefathers did not persecute? You persecuted Isaiah, you persecuted Jeremiah, you persecuted all these prophets that today you honor and revere and you read and you believe and you trust. Back then, the religious leaders persecuted them. And now today, and he brings it here to the climax, and he said all of those prophets were prophesying the coming of the chosen one, meaning the Messiah, meaning Jesus, and you murdered him. So this trend continues. An attempt to control and limit the authority of God. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, the Messiah, was killed in an attempt to limit his influence, to stop his authority, to silence the gospel. But of course, the authority of God cannot and will not be limited by any human attempt. No politician, no official, no leader, no pastor, no person can in any way limit God's authority. Stephen's final and most revolutionary argument is that the salvation of God cannot be limited to the Jewish religion. So through his entire speech, Stephen is building to a climax that's going to lead to his death. And his final point, one that's only fully revealed in verse 56, is that God's salvation is not limited by human religion and specifically by Judaism. Now we need to understand up to this point, the apostles and the leaders of the church, they did not see Christianity as a different faith from Judaism. They did not think they were preaching something against Jew Jewish religion. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment as the apex of Judaism. He is the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He is the one that was prophesied and has come and he has fulfilled the law and he has fulfilled the prophets. So to them, it's a natural progression. It's not something, a, a separate religion, a different religion. It's the fulfillment of the religion that we already have. But with Stephen's speech, something new and different happens. With his speech, for the first time, Christianity is freed from the land of Israel, from the law, from the temple, and from the Jewish religion. Now, I'm going to say more about that, so don't run away too far ahead of me yet. Because of the refusal, generally speaking, of the Jerusalem Jews to receive Jesus, to understand him and accept him as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Because of that, there needed to be a clear differentiation. And in a sense, we see this foreshadowed already in the person of Saul at the end of this account. Who's this Saul guy? Where does he show up from? Well, in case you haven't read the rest of Acts or any of the Bible, Saul is going to be the 
primary instrument that God uses to take the gospel to those who are not Jews. And, and, and Saul suddenly appears, and he's approving Stephen's death. He's like, yes, why? Because he is an ardent Jew. He is a faithful Jew. He is a studied, educated, intellectual Jew. And he is zealous for the religion of his fathers. We're going to see a remarkable transformation in him as Jesus transforms him. And you know, eventually down the line, there's going to be a council in Jerusalem where the leaders of the church are going to come together and they're going to have to decide a fundamental question. And the question is this. Do Gentiles who are coming to believe in Jesus, do they need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved? That's going to cause a big discussion within the leaders of the church, but they're going to come to a consensus understanding and agreement that no, they do not. I do not want any of you to hear me say that Judaism as a religion is unimportant or that we can throw all of Jewish history out or get rid of the Old Testament. Quite the opposite. We cannot and we must not. We must value Jewish history. We must value our understanding of the Jewish religion and of the Old Testament as God's word. They're essential to our understanding of God, to our understanding of ourselves and our vision and understanding of God acting redemptively through all history. But this is the point. God's salvation must not be limited to the Jewish religion. If it were limited to the Jewish religion, it would deny the very source of salvation, Jesus Christ himself. Let me give you an analogy, an illustration that might help you understand this picture. Many of you have probably watched either a live space shuttle launch or a video of one of those space shuttle launches. And the space shuttle is made up of a, a structure that looks kind of like an airplane, but then attached to it are two huge solid booster fuel rockets. Solid fuel rocket boosters, that's what they're called. Two of them. And those boosters are absolutely essential. Without them, the, the space shuttle would not leave the ground. It wouldn't be able to reach orbit. It wouldn't be able to break the bonds of gravity. Those two booster rockets are incredibly powerful. And they power the space shuttle for about the first two minutes of its flight. But then, and so that gets it into the upper atmosphere. The pull of gravity is lessened. They're approaching outer space. And then, most of you know this, what happens? Those two rockets detach from the space shuttle. They fall back to Earth. They have parachutes, and they, they're, it's all plants. They fall into the ocean, they're, and then they're recovered. And then the space shuttle ignites its own engine that is not strong enough to get it off the ground, but it is strong enough and designed to power it where the, the forces of gravity are less and eventually get it into orbit in outer space. Now, if for some reason those solid fuel rocket boosters do not detach, they will eventually destroy 
the shuttle. Because once their fuel runs out, they have no more power and their weight will drag the shuttle down and eventually destroy it as it crashes to earth. At the same time, as I said earlier, they're essential to the launch of the shuttle. Maybe this is a way we can think about Judaism and Christianity. That God began his revelation to the world through Judaism. The Jewish nation, the Israelite people, were his chosen people through whom he was going to show himself to the world. The Jewish religion is filled with images of God, filled with things that point to Jesus, filled with ideas that show us who Jesus came to be and what his work is on earth in us and in eternity. But once Jesus himself came, once he incarnated as the Son of God here on earth, he was moving us on and forward. And at that point, those fuel boosters need to detach. They can't, we can't, he can't be contained any longer within the temple. He can't be contained any longer within the land of Israel, within the authority of the Jewish leaders, because Jesus Christ is supreme. And this is, brings us to... St- Sorry, to Stephen's last statement that he sees Jesus at the right hand of God in heaven, supreme. All authority, all honor, all glory is his. He is above all. I want to go back to the the space shuttle analogy for one more moment. I want you to imagine that you are an alien, okay? For those of you who are Star Wars fans, you have many options now of what you want to imagine, right? You're an alien, but you're a very advanced alien, of course. And uh, you have conquered and mastered space travel throughout all of the universe and multiple galaxies and whatever. And one day, as you're flying along in your rocket ship, I don't know if you drive a rocket ship like this, but anyway, you're flying along and you see this thing. You don't know what it's called, but it's, it's the space shuttle. And um, you are able to dock with the space shuttle and you are able to enter it, but you have no way of communicating with um, these three people, these three entities, these three aliens. They look like aliens to you, so we're going to call them aliens. These three aliens that are on the space shuttle. You have no way of communicating with them. I know it's, it's quite remarkable in the Star Wars universe that um, all aliens speak English. I mean, it's amazing, you know, no, like how, how broadly spread over this universe. They all seem to speak English. But anyway, um, here's the point that I want to get with this. I'm not saying this just to be silly. If as that alien, you had a desire to understand this, the, these three people, who they were, what they're about, where they came from, how they think, but you had no concept of those solid rocket boosters, then you would know so little about them. You wouldn't know that they came from a much larger race. You wouldn't know that they came from a different planet. You wouldn't know that they always, they hadn't always just lived in space in this little pod. You wouldn't know about Earth. You wouldn't know about the, the study and the technology and the trial and error and the work that went into designing these, this ship, this rocket ship that could propel them out of their planet up into the upper reaches of space. You would not know any of that. 
And the point I'm wanting to make with that is when I say that Christianity is freed from the Jewish religion, Christianity, the salvation of God is not contained exclusively within that Jewish religion anymore. It cannot be because the salvation of God comes through Jesus Christ, whom the Jewish leaders, religious leaders of the time had rejected. So, but we need, as Christians, we need to know our history. We need to know our source. We need to know how God has revealed himself in redemptive history. We need to understand and love the Old Testament because it reveals God. It's God's word to us. So just as an alien trying to study human, humans only on the space shuttle would miss so much so if we as Christians try to understand Christianity and understand ourselves and understand Christ apart from his Jewish history, we're going to miss so much of who he is. Stephen's final vision of Christ at the right hand of God reveals once and for all that God is unlimited by anything human. And you know, I, I think of Stephen, if Stephen had only kept his mouth shut, he might have survived. If he hadn't said what he saw, if he hadn't left that testimony for us, he might not have been stoned. But he did. And to the very end, he bore faithful witness to what God had revealed to him. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the eyes of the Sanhedrin, that was the blasphemy that they needed in order to execute Stephen. It's very rare in Scripture for the statement to be made that Jesus stands at the right hand of God, He's always sitting. He takes his seat on the throne at the right hand of God. Why in this case does Stephen see Jesus standing? We don't know absolutely 100% for sure. But I believe that Stephen saw Jesus standing because Jesus had stood in honor of Stephen, his faithful witness, his testimony, and that he stood to receive Stephen into his presence. By the way, I'm not the only one who thinks that. There are a number of scholars who, who I was going to say they back me up, but maybe I back them up. But I think there is a tender portrayal of Christ, concerned and aware of his servant, of his son, of his child, and he stands to welcome him into paradise as he is faithful to the very, very end. For an almighty unlimited God, what is our response? I think our only response is surrender and submission. And I ask you the question, and I ask myself the question, in what ways have we tried to limit God? I don't think most of us have, are tempted to try to limit God to a specific geographical border. I don't think most of us have a, a, a temptation to limit him to one specific building. 
But I do think that we are all tempted to limit God and his authority, specifically as it relates to us in our lives and the way that he relates to us and that we relate to him. So God, you can ask this of me, but you can't ask this. God, I will submit to your authority up to this point, but beyond that point, that's, that's too much. I won't do that. So is there a sense, is there a way, is the Holy Spirit convicting us of means, attempts that we've made to limit his authority in our lives? Jesus is high and lifted up above all dominion, above all control, above all limits. He is God together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is seated there at the right hand of the Father. And he calls his people, he calls his children to complete surrender, to obedience, and ultimately to rest in his supremacy.